Good morning. It's good to have all of you here today. We're looking forward to our second message in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've titled it Living the God Life Instead of the Good Life. Today we want to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and we want to talk about the impact of living the God life. But first let me review last week's message, the thrill of living the good life. The God life. We want to look at those eight Beatitudes and their rewards. Beatitude of those who are poor in spirit. We said that that was really the foundation of all the other Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit is to recognize we need God. We can't do this on our own. Out of that comes a spirit of mourning over the sin of the world. There's a person who's gentle or meek. There's a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. There's a person who, living the God life, is merciful toward others. And there's a person who's pure in heart. We said that that means they have one focus, living all out for God. That's their focus, like Mary at the feet of Jesus. And then there are those who are peacemakers. Not just peace lovers, but peacemakers. And then finally, there are those who are persecuted for the cause of Christ. For us, that may mean things like insults, as the text says. It may mean that others will say evil things about us, untrue things about us. But living the God life instead of the good life is worth it. The kingdom of heaven is one of those rewards for living the good life. Having God's rule in our lives, having His comfort, inheriting the earth, that's really something to have. Having satisfaction from God, finding God's mercy ourselves, seeing God at work, in ways that other people can't see Him. Having the thrill of being called the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then the special rewards that we will someday receive when we step on heaven's shore. An anonymous writer penned these words, Your life has purpose. Your story is important. Your dreams count. Your voice matters. You were born to make an impact. And while I agree with the first four sentences as they are, I'd like to restate the final sentence so that it agrees with the teachings of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount. It should read, You were born again to make an impact. And that's what I want to talk about today. Every believer, every disciple of Jesus then and now makes an impact, however small or great, for the glory of God. And in our text today, in Matthew 5, 13-16, Jesus expands on His Beatitudes by giving the disciples and the crowd then, and us today, two word pictures about the extent of our reach into the lives of people around us and around the world. In this very portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the reward we receive is making an impact for God and for all of eternity in the lives of those around us who need Jesus. Let's talk about that first word picture. It's pretty basic. I call it the taste test. Because Jesus here talks about 
salt. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is one of the most common substances found on the planet. We use it in one way or another every day of our lives, and it's in use all over the world in every country. Jesus makes the key point that those who love Him and follow Him are to bring the fully satisfying flavor of the God life to a world that only knows the bland tastelessness of the so-called good life. For true believers, the operative word in this illustration is the verb are. You are the salt of the earth. Please notice what Jesus did not teach here. He did not say, you really should be the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't get after his disciples in front of the crowd on that mountain and say, why haven't you been the salt of the earth? No, he stated plainly and stated his own declaration that his children by faith, those living the God life, are the salt of the earth. Notice something else about that statement. He did not say, you are the salt shaker. In Mark chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves, or more directly, be who you are. Be who God made you to be. Early this morning, I made a plate of scrambled eggs here in the church kitchen. I don't plan on eating them. They're cold now. But I love scrambled eggs. But I also love them with salt and pepper on them. But I don't put salt on them by just setting my salt shaker on these scrambled eggs like this. You can't season food to taste with just a salt shaker. The salt has to be shaken out onto the food that is intended to flavor. Furthermore, Jesus did not say you are the salt of heaven. Jesus doesn't need the impact of believers today to be made in heaven since only perfect believers live there now in His presence. No, He specifically says we are the salt of the earth with a born-again purpose to impact this earth and its inhabitants for God. This world needs us to apply the truth of God and shake out the story of His grace and sprinkle His love around. If we refuse to come out of the salt shaker, if we hide out in our churches or in our homes and never contact the people who most need the preserving, purifying, cleansing action of salty Christians, Jesus tells us here in the text what will happen. I remember in the 70s there was a very popular book by Rebecca Manley Pippert entitled, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That we need to be out in the world, contacting people and making an impact in their lives. Let me give you a 60-second overview of the history of salt. Back in Jesus' day, the salt of the ancient world came from the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And it also came from some salt mines. The word salary comes from the practice of paying Roman foot soldiers and also slaves in salt. It was a very important commodity. In fact, we uh, sometimes will say about a person, uh, Joe is not worth his salt. 
That's where that expression comes from. What happened to that salt in those days is that when it was dug out of the Dead Sea or mined out of a mine, it was sometimes mixed with other debris and minerals, and so it couldn't be used as it should for flavoring a meal or preserving meat or fish. The only option then for people, especially everyday people, was to dump it out on the pathways around their house, and it became kind of like fine pea gravel or a crude version of cement to walk on. It's only as we live lives that are unmixed by the widespread corruption and decay of the world can our saltiness be a preservative, a disinfectant, a difference maker, or an impact maker. Too many Christians live mixed up lives, mixed up with the world, and the result is that unbelievers will often say, there's no difference that I can see. At least I'm living the the good life, they would say. And we're supposed to be living the God life. Our taste test is to bring the flavor or savor of the Savior to a lost and dying world by shaking out our salt right where we are. To be the preservative Jesus says we are, we need to be true to our convictions and not allow the world to mix in with our pure salt. And the salt is intended to make food more foody, meaning that the world needs to taste and see that the Lord is good, not just hold the salt in their hands or examine it closely. Salt on our food is designed to enhance the flavor of the meal. I doubt very seriously that you'll ever hear a friend or family member at your table say, boy, this salt really tastes great, while never eating the meal in front of them. Both of these word pictures today, salt and light, have the goal of glorifying God, not bringing fame or acclaim to the messenger. And if our salt is never spread around, we may become spiritually a picture of Lot's wife in Genesis 19, who because of her attraction to the world became a pillar of salt. I can tell you right now, you can't shake salt out of a pillar, assuming you could even pick it up to start with. That's a large pillar. Five feet plus. It doesn't work that way. Let me share a Bible story with you from the ministry of Elisha. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 2. Elisha is the new prophet of God. You remember following Elijah's trip to heaven in a whirlwind of fire? The locals tell Elisha about how bad the city water is there and how unfruitful the local crops have been by watering them with that water. Elisha tells him in verse 20 of 2 Kings 2, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they did. Elisha threw the salt in the spring water and said in verse 21, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from there death or unfruitfulness any longer. And then verse 22 tells us, So the waters have been purified to this day, that is, to the time when the book of 2 Kings was written. Think about this. Wouldn't it be exciting to have all of God's people shake out their salt into our sin-cursed world and as a result see death caused by sin and unfruitfulness from seeking just the good life banished forever? 
I can tell you right now that if God could work that physical miracle through Elisha back then, He can work a similar spiritual miracle today through His disciples and their salt. Why? Because God hasn't changed. And because salt is still salty. Sodium chloride doesn't change. It can be mixed with other things, yes. But salt is still salty. I'll say a bit more about salt at the end of the message, but let's take a look at this second word picture, light, verses 14 and 15. I call this LEDs, light-emitting disciples. Jesus describes His true followers, those living the God life, as light. You are the light of the world. The Bible is very clear that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 And since Jesus is God in the flesh, He tells us in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here in this wonderful Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells His committed disciples that they are the light of the world. That statement is based on the fact that we have in us the light of life that shines into a very dark world. That light may be very small, like this tiny little pen light, but it still shines in the darkness, doesn't it? The light stands as a lighthouse to those caught up in the undertow of the sea of sin. That's a biblical description of the lost world. Isaiah 57 verse 20 describes the world of lost men and women by saying, The wicked are like the tossing sea that cannot be quiet. Our light stands as a guide to light the way to those lost in the fog, yet seeking to come to God by faith. And it gives off the warm glow of love and grace to those who have only felt the icy cold and scary darkness of the supposed good life. God first created light and separated it from darkness, we remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In Christ we have been recreated as light, light that continues to shine and shine brightly in the darkness. In Job 24, verse 16, Job accurately described sinners, even those living their so-called good life this way. They shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. By contrast, Proverbs 13, verse 6 says of God's people living the God life, the light of the righteous rejoices. And think about it. Why shouldn't we rejoice? We're walking in the light. And our true fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into our world, the light was on display 24-7 in Him. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 9, verse 2, those who walk in darkness will see a great light. And that prophecy came to fulfillment in the Savior. Mark 4, verse 16 quotes that very passage in Isaiah and applies it to Jesus. It says there, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So, Jesus was and is that fulfillment of prophecy. But, Jesus was only here for a little over 30 years. 
And He Himself said in John 9, verses 4 and 5, We must work the works of Him who sent Me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, that's a key phrase, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus, in this great Sermon on the Mount, was preparing His contemporary disciples for the day when He would leave and then they and we would be the light. We would work in the light. We would glorify the light. One more reference will drive home this key point that we are the reflectors of His light now that He's at the Father's right hand. Paul writes in Philippians 2.14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what lights are supposed to do. Right? Shine. Jesus emphasizes that point with two examples. A city set on a hill and a lamp or a light bulb on a stand in a house. When you travel around Utah and Idaho, in nearly every town there's a set of stones on the nearby mountains off the interstate. It's often lit up at night. That represents the initials of the town or city or county. For example, in our county, it's the letter F as you come into Franklin, Idaho. It's hard to miss, isn't it? Especially when it's lit up. If you build an entire city on top of a hill, especially with all its business and home lights lit up at night, it too is going to be hard to miss. Preston is not a city set on a hill, but you can't miss downtown Preston during the Festival of Lights in November. People come from miles away to view the attractive displays down State Street. Our own church had a lighted presence this year. And I trust that we have been lights in our communities in this past year. And that we will again in 2016. And then too, a candle on a lampstand in a small house is going to brighten up the whole place. That's the purpose of the candle or the light. There'd be obviously no point at all in buying a candle or a light bulb and then installing it under a heavy black wooden box from which no light could escape. That reminds us that our light, His light, must shine beyond the four walls of the church out to where it is the darkest. And for that to happen, we have to be shining our reflective light where we live and work, not in isolation with a purpose that the impact of its warmth and glow and guidance and protection can be felt by those who are the coldest, the darkest, the most lost, the most vulnerable. Amazingly, the light doesn't always shine brightly in the church. And Jesus doesn't challenge us to be the light of the church, but the light of the world. Some in the church have covered the light for unbelievers, and expect them to squint to see it. The famed poet and writer Robert Louis Stevenson, who was not a believer, who rarely ever went to church, made this comment, I've been to church today and am not depressed. (laughs) There are plenty of churches people can go in today where they're going to be depressed because they're not going to see the light of Jesus through us. 
It's no secret that a moral darkness covers the earth. And it seems to be spreading and getting denser each year as time goes by. The fault lies not only with those who, according to John 3, 19 and 20, love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, but also with some professing believers who claim to be in the light, but actually who walk in darkness. In 1 John 1, 5 and 6, we read this. This is the message that we have heard from Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There in a nutshell is the difference between the God life where light continually shines and the good life where sinners pretend to be lighting up the night, but they're really groping around in total blackness. The purpose of shining our lights for the lost to see is so that God, the light, and His Son Jesus Christ, the light of the world, will get all the glory. And that brings us to the final point of our message today. The purpose of glorifying God. Jesus teaches His followers to let their light shine in such a way that others may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Some key words need to be explained first. First, there's that expression, good works, that we need to understand. There are two words translated good in the Greek New Testament. The word used here means winsome or beautiful or attractive. Our good works can't buy us the God life, but they can attract others to the beauty of God's goodness and glory and point them to the God life by faith in Jesus Christ. Our works are intended in this setting to say to others, don't focus on what I have done, but on what God has done through me. The other key word in this verse is the lovely word, Father. Interestingly, it's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus uses this title for God. We'll see it again in verse 45 of this chapter. Jesus turns His disciples' thoughts to the fact that they are the children of God who want to see their Father get the honor He so richly deserves. I want to ask this morning... As we draw this message to a close, what are some practical ways that we can bring glory to our Father through sprinkling the flavor of God's favor on others and drawing them to the warm glow of truth about this Father who longs to be their Father too? Well, first of all, there is a cost to doing both. I need to move out of my comfort zone and make contact with those I want to impact. Whether it's in my role as salt on the earth or as light in the world, my life must connect with that other person's life. In other words, do I keep shaking the salt vigorously inside the shaker or do I spread it around generously like this? Do I shine God's light in places where it already glows in the dark? Where the unbeliever goes? Secondly, my impact will revolve around good works of compassion toward others. 
Those compassionate steps can be random or planned, material or emotional, but they all come out of the storehouse of the compassionate blessing God has poured out on us. And then third, our impact will be greatly affected by our consistency of God life on display before our neighbors and friends. Now, I want to get more specific. Whoever I am, whatever my age, whatever my position in life, my salt needs to be shaken and my light needs to shine. So here are some examples. If I'm a Christian child, Christian young person in a home where dad or mom is not now a believer, God wants to use me to flavor that home with Christ's love and light the lamp daily that will attract that parent to Jesus. My theme chorus ought to be, and I know some of you will want to sing it with me, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Secondly, if I'm married and my mate is not a Christian, I can be so impactful to him or her. The Bible says specifically to wives, 1 Peter 3.1, Be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior, the good works of the wives. A third example, if I'm seeking to be a godly witness to my neighbor, I can be challenged and encouraged by Colossians 4, 5, and 6, which say, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And then one final example. If I feel the call of God to missions, to bring the truth to people in other lands or cultures, God can and will use me as salt in that field. He'll use me to shine His light in that dark place. I'm praying and have been for a long time, and others are praying that someone from our congregation will sense God's effective call to be a full-time missionary somewhere in this dark world. And then our church family can stand with them and support them financially to answer that call. In my morning devotions early in this year, along with my Bible reading, I'm reading several other books, including the autobiography of John G. Payton, a missionary from the Free Church of Scotland to the tribal people of the island of Vanuatu, No, this isn't Survivor of Vanuatu on TV. This was a real missionary in the late 1800s. His account of being salt and light to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands is an exciting story. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. He clearly wanted God to get all the glory. But his story and ours is the same in that I can't wait until I arrive on that distant shore to make an impact with the gospel. I can't wait till then. I am to be salt and light right here. My theme song, whatever my age, should be another great missionary hymn. Do not wait until some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to spread your light afar. To the many duties ever near you, now be true. Brighten the corner where you are. That's a great message for you and me. 
That's enough illustrations. How about one more verse from God's Word that coincides beautifully with this part of Jesus' sermon and that will drive this message home? Listen to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Let's ask God to make us effective as we shake our salt on this decaying world and as we shine the light into the dark corners of our neighborhood and our world. And on the back of your notes, in the assignment section, it says, record how you have made an impact this week. And I challenge you to do that. To write down in your notes, how did God use me to make an impact this week? We're going to close the service with the chorus, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And just as I modified that opening illustration, the last line, I've also modified the last line of both the chorus and the verse of this well-known praise song. Because I want our testimony to be, our prayer to be, God shine through me. Use me to shine your light. Let's sing it together.